Uh, If you have a Bible, open it up to James. We're going to look at James, just a few more weeks in the book of James, and we're going to look at some Christmas sermons. Um, And I'm not sure exactly where we're going to land in January yet, so pray for that. I'm I'm backing off of Romans. We might delay it a little longer. Um, So James chapter 5 today, the series Faith Works, we've been uh, being challenged by James. It's going to be a really challenging one today. Um, James kind of pushes and prods us and challenges us to think of faith as more than just an abstract idea, but faith is something that really works in real life. It's a sovereign God whose grace invades our life and changes our heart. It doesn't instantly fix everything that's wrong in a broken world, but it helps us to live with hope in a broken world and begins to change us day by day. In James chapter 5, this week we're calling it treasure. And we'll be on page 1013 in the Black Bibles that are out there in the chairs, if you want to follow along in one of those black Bibles, if you don't have your own. Um, If you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take those, as a matter of fact. But James chapter 5 will be in verses 1 through 6. We're calling it treasure, and James is hitting uh, really hard the idea of what what kind of hope we put in material things, in money, treasure, resources. When I was a kid, I always dreamed of finding buried treasure. Do you all ever dream of finding something like that? Yeah, and I remember actually my my mom had to teach me that it wasn't okay to just dig holes in the backyard and that I probably wasn't going to find pirate treasure in the backyard in central Texas. So that was disappointing. Um, but there's still that little kid in me that always dreamed of finding, you know, this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, this buried pirate treasure in the backyard, whatever it might be. Um, as we get older, we look for that treasure in different things, right? So James is going to really hammer money today, and we need to hear that. But I also want you to be thinking about what are the things that you really treasure? What are the things that are ultimate for you? That's a helpful lens to hear this through because you could just turn off your brain and go, oh, well, I'm not Scrooge McDuck bathing in gold coins, so this isn't for me, right? Um, So he's going to be hammering money issues, but we've all got issues, right? I mean, we've all got stuff that we hoard, that we put our hope in, that's a treasure to us. It may not be money itself. So, So listen to these words from James 5. Verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Most commentators think that James is speaking specifically to those who have no hope in God and have put all their hope in riches but that it's also a secondary message for those of us who have indeed put our hope in God, yet drift and are tempted to put our hope back in riches again. So I think this message really speaks to all of us today. Um, let me pray that, that God would help us to hear it. God, we, we pray that you would help us today, that your spirit would meet us here. I pray for those of us that are tempted to think we, we don't have an issue here, that your spirit would help us to have open eyes and open hearts. Um, Pray also for those that maybe feel such a weight of condemnation that, it, that it's hard even to pay attention, that there's complete despair. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you're a God that meets us where we are and pray that you would help us 
to learn and to hear your word and to find grace in your son Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, those of you that know me well, you know that one of the things that I treasure is food. Um, I don't, it doesn't stick to me like it does to some people, but I love food. I'm really, I'm really good at eating food. I mean, it's one of the gifts I've always had. I've been good at it. I love it. Um, people that love to cook usually love me because I love to eat what they cook. Um, so it's a good symbiotic relationship there. Um, I love food. I love, I treasure food. There were a lot of years growing up that we didn't have much money. And I can remember, you know, wishing that we had special snacks that we didn't have. And, you know, I was encouraged to snack on like rice and beans or fruits and vegetables or weird stuff like that, you know, and I wanted better, like more rich, delightful things. There was one particular snack that I loved. And this snack, you may know it, it's called the Vienna sausage. Have you ever heard of this? (laughs) I loved Vienna sausages. If you're not familiar with them, they're kind of like hot dogs, uh, but they're shorter and greasier and they come a little (laughs) pop-top can, right? I'm making my wife sick up here. Uh, I loved Vienna sausages. When I didn't have Vienna sausages, I would roll up bologna and dip it in a mayonnaise jar, but that's another story. Okay, so I loved Vienna sausages, and I can remember one day in particular just delighting that my mom had splurged and packed the pantry with some cans of Vienna sausages. So I popped open the, the can, and I popped a Vienna sausage in my mouth and was eating it, and you know... As soon as I popped it in my mouth, I'm looking down for the next one that I'm going to devour. Oh, no, yeah. There were worms in the can. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, of course, I'm like, Bleh! you know, and I, I just spit out this half-chewed Vienna sausage in my mouth. I kind of throw the can down. I'm like rinsing my mouth out. I think I put vinegar in my mouth or something to try to clean the nasty out, you know. Um, and I, I probably didn't eat Vienna sausages for like 20 years. I mean, I think I've eaten them once since then, really. I I don't eat them very often anymore. And I share that particularly horrifying and disgusting story with you because God wants you to be horrified this morning in the book of James when we think about the things that we treasure and delight in and think are going to bring us so much wonderful feelings and just going to make everything okay. And he's saying, watch out. Those things that you treasure are going to eat you alive. There's corrosion. There's death there. And so James is warning us. Again, James, James speaks much more harshly than I naturally do, but I have to recognize that this is God's word and this is what we need to hear. We need to hear these hard words that there are things that we delight in. There are things that we treasure that, that will kill us. And just like a good doctor says, you know what, this is hurting you, this is killing you, we need to operate, we need to do something, it's serious. In our culture, we've come to a place where we think if something's really dangerous and really serious, that the really loving thing to do is just ignore it. But God in his word doesn't ignore it. He says this is, this is a crisis, this is something that's going to corrode, hurt, and kill Jesus had parallel language in Matthew 6 to what James talks about in this passage. So I just want to read you. Jesus' words, so you can hear the echo here. So in Matthew 6, Jesus says this. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Jesus says, Don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. 
right? James says, it's too late. It's too late. We already have. You see the difference in emphasis? Jesus is saying, I'm warning you. Don't put all your stock in these earthly treasures. They're not going to save you. They're going to hurt you. They're going to crow. They're going to fall apart. You think these things will save you. They can't save you. Stir up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus pleads with us. James says, it's too late. It's corroding you. It's already killing you. So James is coming at it from a more negative side. And as I said, a lot of commentators think he's speaking to those that have just put all their trust in it, right? And he's not necessarily speaking to believers. This is more like a warning for believers, but I, I think this is applicable to all of us. Whether all your trust is in that money or your trust is in Jesus and you just are drifting, either way, this warning is for us. This warning is for us that if we put our trust in riches, ultimately they're corrosive, they're destructive, uh, it'll hurt us. And so that's the first main point, that treasure is corrosive. It's the word he uses twice. He uses other words, moths, eating. Um, What's the other word he uses? He talks about um, it eats your flesh. It's like fire. So he uses all this language that really kind of is reminiscent of hell and ultimate judgment. Uh, Pretty much all Christian theologians that read the Bible agree that if, if we don't trust in Jesus to forgive us for our sins, that there's this thing called hell that awaits us, that is a a judgment for being separated from God. It's like um, this place of of fire um, and corrosion and kind of all the same language. Um, So it's this very negative, scary, horrifying prospect that basically life apart from God is death. Life in God is life. We have hope. He saves us. He, He gives us life. God's generous, but these other gods that we trust in, they, they take from us. They suck the life out of us. They destroy us. They eat at us. They burn us. They corrode us. And that's the contrast here that James is setting up. He says, again, in verse two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse one, I think, is the kind of carryover for the whole passage today of challenging us to repent, right? He says, howl and moan. Come now, you rich. Weep. Howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. So he's telling us how we, re- we should respond. We should weep. We should howl. We should repent. We should be worried about this. We should be sickened uh, as we were by the Vienna sausage story. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> but now he's saying your riches have rotted. So the actual process of how it works is it's rotting, it's corroding, it's moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire because you've laid up treasure in the last days. This, this word corrosion is the one that's repeated. All the words are kind of related, but the corrosion word can be like metal corroding, you know, when something rusts or when a metal degrades, it begins to disintegrate, right? Have you ever seen that? Maybe you've just had like a chemistry experiment, you know, where you put a metal in a jar and things bubbled and it kind of started to decay or acid would eat it or whatever it might be. That's what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about things getting eaten up, things that we think are going to be valuable and last will actually be eaten up and decayed. The words also used in Greek, the same word for metal corrosion is also used for venom, uh, poison, right? And so you may be familiar, there's dangerous spiders and dangerous snakes here in Texas, and they have venom that can eat away literally at your flesh. Welcome to Central Texas, okay? Um, and this, that poison literally corrodes the flesh. I had a dog that got bitten by a rattlesnake. Here's a not a picture of the dog, but here's a picture of the rattlesnake. <laughs> I actually thought about that. You don't want to see that, okay? 
But here's the rattlesnake. Again, if you're new to Central Texas, you see something like this, just run the other way, okay? Um, They've got these fangs. They've got this poison in the fangs, and it literally eats your flesh. It corrodes, and that's what James says this wealth does. It's the thing we think will save us. I need more money. I need a bigger 401k. I need a better job. I need another boat. I need another house. And if we just stack these things up, then I'll be safe, right? I'm not going to struggle like my parents did, or I'm not going to struggle like I did when I was a kid. I'm going to be secure, and I'm going to put these barriers so life can't get at me. But he's saying, no, it's, it's still going to corrode. It's still going to eat away at you like a poisonous venom. Treasure is corrosive. It's not something that saves you. Um, it, should, it should terrify us. So my question for you is, is, what are you investing in? What are you laying up for yourself? The word he uses here is that you have laid up treasure in the last days. He's saying the, the world's ending and you're collecting gold in the corner, right? Like the zombies are coming to eat you and you've got a pot of gold and that's not going to really help you, is it? Saying you should, you should lay up the right kind of treasure. What, what are you trusting in? Again, the contrast is between the God who can save you, the God who loves you, the God who is generous, that God is pictured for us, is imaged for us in Jesus Christ, who took on a responsibility that didn't belong to him, and that responsibility was our sin. And he took it on the cross for us, and he died, and he was buried. He rose from the grave, and his resurrection proved that he beat sin and death for us, that he was that champion that conquered it. So think about in your mind, what is the God that you serve? What is the treasure that you're investing in? What are you laying up? What are you storing up? What do you think is going to save you? I would argue that whatever you treasure is the same thing you worship, and that's what you're going to become like. And every other God except for the God of the universe who's revealed himself in Jesus is the kind of God that takes from you, that makes you a slave, that corrodes you, that eats away at you that will not save you. Another thing I need to say on this is when we are tempted by sin, one of the things that can be confusing for those of us that grew up with some kind of Christian worldview is you try a little sin and you're not instantly struck by lightning, right? How many of you, first time you did something your parents told you not to do, were struck by lightning? Anybody here? Okay. No, right? You do it and you're like, whoa, I didn't get caught. And it was nice. That tasted good. That was fun. That was pleasurable. Yes. Right? Nobody's arguing here that sin is like instantly revolting. It's down the road, right? It's like after the 10th can of Vienna sausages that you realize there's a problem. That's the nature of sin. So you, you invest in this treasure and whatever it is, these false gods that you think are going to save you, and it works out great at first. It's just not a good long-term investment plan. That's what Scripture says, is you continue to invest in your own desires and your own sin and your own false gods and money and things and whatever it may be, as you invest in these things, they don't actually have the power to save. That's the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview does not try to communicate that sin's always no fun. Sin is usually fun. That's why we're tempted by it, right? But it doesn't long-term give us life. It's long-term corrosive and destructive. And again, James is specifically saying here, money. Money's a big problem, and it's a problem that all of us have. Right? And I have to remind you of this, that we're the richest people in the world. So the poorest people in this room today, you're richer than everybody else in the room. Right? I mean, not in the room, in the world. 
So the poorest in the room are richer than everybody else in the world, right? As Americans, we too often, you know, compare ourselves to our neighbors and say, well, my neighbor has more than I do or my friend or my uncle or whatever. Well, yeah, but you have get, you've still got more than everybody else in the world. So, so we are these rich people that Jesus says it's impossible for us to make it into heaven. Jesus says that it's impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle. And I had a little children's book when I was a kid that said, well, really, this is from a castle, and it had this little door called the eye of the needle, and the camel had to take off its stuff so he could scoot through the door. Do you all have that children's book when you were a kid? It's lies. It's all lies, okay? <laughs> it, it's not true. I mean, there was, this, there was some door in a castle, but that was like a 1,000 years later after Jesus said it, right? I mean, when Jesus is saying this, Jesus is saying, a big camel can't go through the eye of a needle, Okay? We have to wrestle with that, that Jesus said it's impossible for rich people to be saved because we think we're fine. We think because we have an iPhone, because we have whatever we've got, fast food, we're okay, we don't need anything. And he says, if you're satisfied and you have the things you need and you're taken care of on a daily basis, it's impossible to be saved. There has to be a despair and a brokenness and an emptiness, a humility, as James said in James chapter 4, where we humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift us up. And so we have to hear that. And again, we have to wrestle with Jesus saying it's impossible for rich people to be saved. And he says, but what's impossible with man is possible with God. But don't, don't jump too fast over that impossibility. You have, to, you have to sweat there a little bit first, right? You have to wrestle for a little while that Jesus was talking to us Jesus was talking to us, saying it's impossible for people like you to be saved. It's impossible. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. The next thing that James hammers is that treasuring things belittles people. It it breaks our ability to fulfill um, what Jesus says is what the law is all about. It's honoring God and honoring people, loving God and loving people. James says, well, you you break that. When you treasure things, you, uh, you devalue people. He says this in verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is parallel language to Old Testament prophets who made the same kind of accusation against the people of God that they are mistreating people. And what happens is we value things and we belittle people. And we say, people are just an obstacle. I, I need the things, right? The things are what will take care of me. I don't care about the people. And then we end up mistreating people. By definition, if you have resources, if you have stuff, then you have more abilities. You have more freedom. And what happens with that freedom is you have more temptation than to use that freedom and to use those resources to cover your tracks, right? To take care of yourself and to mistreat others. And so that's always a temptation for those with influence and those with power. And again, we, we think this doesn't apply to us because we're all like, we're middle-class people. He's just talking to these filthy rich people. No, we, we're all rich people. We all have a lot of freedoms. We all have a lot of resources. We all have a lot of abilities. He's saying, be careful. Don't think you can cover your tracks because God knows. God will hear the cries of the people that we have mistreated. And so just because our circle of friends doesn't know, or just because it's not something we can go to jail for, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be tried in the courtroom of heaven. 
And that's what James is saying here. God knows what we do. There's nothing we do that can be hidden from God. It's really secondary whether or not our friends know or the police know. God knows. God knows how we treat people. I have a picture here of a lawyer holding up evidence. James had used this language of evidence in just the previous verse, and now he's talking about the cries of those we've mistreated coming before God. God hears. God sees the evidence. God knows. So even though no one in our immediate circle might see the evidence, God sees the evidence, and God knows of our guilt. He's talking about how those of us with things often cut corners and abuse people without things so that we can have more things, right? We mistreat people, we cut corners, we take advantage of others, and the scriptures always say that this is wrong. Always say that this is wrong. So the first application is, how are we treating those that serve us, that work for us, that work with us? Some of you have a lot of authority, some of you have very little authority, but we all have influence over other people's lives. Uh, We all have an ability to be just and be generous with how we spend our money and how we spend our time. Do you see people that do certain jobs as lesser and you see certain people that do other jobs as more important? That's an evidence of how we treasure things and belittle people. In the Bible, we're supposed to love and honor all people as made in the image of God, no matter what things they do or what service they perform. Uh, One specific way I'd like to really challenge you on what this looks like is if you're a Christian and you eat out at a restaurant and you pray and you don't leave a tip, I would just say, don't pray. Please don't pray, okay? (laughs) If you're one of those people that are like, wow, they don't deserve a tip, they already get a wage. Well, it's, it's half a normal wage, right? It's not a full wage. They live off the tip. So just don't pray if you're going to not tip people, okay? Christians should be generous people. Now, the flip side of this is Christians shouldn't be the people that always say, oh, well, forget the rules. You can be late to work. No problem, right? We don't want to go to that extreme either. Christians should love people, and we love people and how we manage them by holding them accountable, by helping them keep the rules, by helping them fulfill their commitments, by challenging them. That's a part of being a Christian leader as well. So we should be just and we should be generous, okay? Both should be true. I have a friend that's a Christian businessman, and he says when people start being really noisy about bringing up their Christian faith when he's interviewing them to hire them, he gets suspicious, right? Because he's found that often those are the people that want to be late and not show up for work and and think, well, we're both Christians, right? Like, you got to let me off the hook. So I I don't want to go to that extreme of holding people to a lower bar. Yeah, we should expect excellence from people, but we should be generous. We should help people get there. We should help people meet the bar. We should hold them accountable and help them improve. So don't think of people as less because of what they do or that they aren't a lesser authority than you. The other thing I think um, is just to remember how important it is for us to remember that, that things get in the way of how we love people. And remember that we often collect things thinking it'll help us love people better, but it's a, it's a classic mistake that husbands and fathers make thinking that being a great provider means being away all the time and providing. So maybe you grew up in a situation where your dad couldn't provide, so you're like, I'm going to provide, and that's going to be number one, and a husband and a father should provide. Yes, it's a biblical value, but make sure you're, you're caring for the people in your circle of influence as well. Make sure you're caring for your family for those around you. Don't, don't substitute the one for the other. The, the last thing 
that we see in James 5 here is that treasure can't save us. It can't save us. As a matter of fact, the thing we think that will save us actually crushes us. Um, Verse 5, he says, you've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James has all kinds of poetic language here, and, and part of what he's doing is a play on words here. So the day of slaughter would have been like the day you have the big feast and the barbecue, right? And so this is, can be a very positive word, like, yay, barbecue day, right? That's, that's what it could sound like. But it could also be, um, oh no, I'm going to be slaughtered, right? So it has that, has that play on words here. He's saying you fattened yourselves. You fattened yourselves. So there's an irony here. We're looking forward to barbecue day, but we're fattening ourselves instead of fattening the calf that we're going to barbecue, right? And so it's, it's kind of like you're fattening yourself and you end up being the meal in the end. You end up getting burned. You end up getting killed when the whole time you think, oh, you're going to have all this great stuff. It's going to be so wonderful. So it's a, a play on words there. There's a story that's an example of this in 1 Samuel 4. So Old Testament passage, 1 Samuel 4, it's uh, before... Uh, the, the reign of the kings begins, um, and it's the story of Eli, who was a priest. And Eli had a couple of sons who were, I guess, priests also, priest assistants, and they were known for being immoral men. And they're actually known for fattening themselves, for taking what didn't belong to them. So just context here, the Old Testament sacrificial system, they would bring uh, animals to sacrifice to the Lord, but it wasn't just a pure burn it up and walk away. A lot of it was actually a fellowship meal, right? Most of it was a shared meal. Some of it was burned up, but most of it was a meal that was then shared with the priests. And so it was really this beautiful system of like going to camp and having a barbecue and having a fellowship meal. So there are all these kind of beautiful things that took place in that sacrificial system. It wasn't just blood and nastiness, right? I mean, there was some, some good eating that was going on as well. But these guys were taking too much. They were taking what didn't belong to them. So Eli and his sons were taking more of the food and fattening themselves. And what's really interesting is the word for glory in the Old Testament is a word that means weighty. It's a word that means heavy. So when you say God is awesome, right, you're saying he's big. Well, the Old Testament word for glory, kabod, means awesome, weighty, could even be translated fat, right? It doesn't have, fat doesn't have all the negative connotations in the Old Testament that it does as much today in our hyper fitness culture, right? So it means big, weighty, awesome, significant. And it's this interesting story about these guys that were taking what didn't belong to them, making themselves glorious. And in the process of the story, I encourage you to go back and read it. I'm just kind of giving you the highlights. Um, These sons that were taking what didn't belong to them, they end up getting killed. The Philistine army steals the Ark of the Covenant, which signified the presence of God. So the real glory of God's presence among his people is taken away. They'd been trying to take God's glory for themselves instead of pointing people to the glory of God. They're killed. Eli, their dad, who should have taught them better, was so fat, it said he fell over and broke his neck. And in the Hebrew, it's like he fell over and broke his neck because he was so glorious. You see the play on words there? He'd been fattening himself. He'd been taking God's glory, but he couldn't stand the weight of it. It crushed him. It crushed him. He couldn't handle it. Our job is to reflect God's glory to him, is to point people to him, not to take glory on ourselves. And when we, when we collect things, 
and we think we're going to be saved by having all this stuff. It's like we're taking a glory on for ourselves, and it's a weight that we cannot handle. It's a weight that crushes us. What's really fascinating is that's then where the name Ichabod comes from. Eli's grandson is born then right after the story happens, and they said, and they named him Ichabod, which literally means, where's the glory? Where's the glory? It's gone. The glory is gone. So what does this look like for us? Well, I have a confession to make. I, I often, um, I don't have a lot of money in my bank account, but I hold on to things, right? If you've seen my desk, I, my secretaries used to joke, be careful. If you get too close to Dave's desk, you might fall in. I don't know if you've ever seen a desk like that. So kinda, I just kind of hold on to things thinking, well, I might, I might need that someday, right? Like it'll keep me safe to hold on to stuff because if I throw away stuff, then I'll, then I'll miss it, right? And so it's this security thing. Maybe, maybe you struggle like that. There's a show I've heard about. I've never watched it, but I found a picture. It's a show on TLC called Hoarders or Hoarding. Have y'all ever seen that before? So it's these people like, my desk looks like this, but, but thankfully my, my wife uh, holds me in check. Our living room doesn't look like this, thank the Lord. But, but it's kind of a symptom or a, a, an image of how we, we collect things, thinking it's going to make us secure somehow. And then we wake up one day and we're completely dysfunctional, right? We saved all this stuff and it's crashing in on us. It's, it's crushing us. We, we fattened ourselves and now it's destroying us. That's what James is saying we do with money specifically. Well, like I said earlier, we, we do this with all kinds of things. I don't know what it is for you. Money may not be the temptation, but there's probably something that you're collecting, that you're clinging to, that you're holding on to. And Jesus is trying to tell you this morning, let go of that. Let go of that because it's, it's going to crush you. Whether it's pleasure, whether it's escapism, whether it's your job, whether it's serial relationships, whatever it is, he's saying that that's not going to save you, but it's going to cave in on you. It's going to crush you. It, its weight is too much for you to bear. Uh, two applications. When we find this in our life, one is, is just repentance, right? So I'm going to say three applications. One is just repentance, just recognizing that before God and other people. God, I'm clinging to this. It can't save me. I need you to save me. But two exercises are, are giving and fasting. And just so you don't think I'm manipulating you to give more here, you can give to some other ministry if you want to. But it's a helpful exercise for you to kind of loosen your grip on your stuff. As Christians give, it helps us remember as a discipline, my stuff doesn't belong to me. My stuff belongs to God. So it's just a systematic way of just telling yourself that on a regular basis. When you get stuff, I'm going to give some of it away. It's a practice that helps your heart loosen up its grip. Another one is fasting. And fasting doesn't have to just be a food issue. It can be fasting from whatever uh, pleasure, distraction, movies, TV, music, noise, busyness, whatever it might be that you're becoming dependent on, that you're starting to hoard, right? And you can fast from whatever those things are. Make that time when you, when you miss that thing that you're going without, make that a time of prayer. of saying, God, you're enough. I think this is what I need, but you're enough. And again, it can be a discipline, not something that saves you, just a discipline that helps you loosen your grip on these other false saviors. So I just want to encourage you to consider these applications, but it starts with repentance. Don't give or fast apart from a heart change, right? We have to always know that it's only Jesus that can save us. Our actions can't save us. Our disciplines can't save us, but these disciplines 
become expressions of a changed heart. They become ways of us saying again back to the Lord what we really believe is true. Well, the last verse in this section is verse 6. It's another play on words. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And so, again, at the surface level, he's talking about how we take advantage of other people, what he was just saying in previous sections. And that's the, the clear, kind of obvious first, first meaning here. You're taking advantage of people. You've condemned and hurt and murdered a righteous person. But we also know from context, from the way Jesus spoke in the Gospels, that there's only one righteous person. There's only one who's really righteous. When the rich man comes to Jesus and calls him good and says, what must I do to be saved? Jesus is like, why are you calling me good? Why are you calling me good? And and he knows that money has a hold on this man's heart. And Jesus is challenging him to consider who's really good. Our hearts have to be confronted with the reality that only Jesus is the true righteous person, and he was condemned and murdered for our sin. So Christians, again, are not people who say, I'm going to just clean myself up and do the right thing and get my stuff together, and then God will love and approve of me. Christians are people who have humbled themselves before God, who've come to God broken and said, God, I can't do this. I've been hoarding this stuff, and it's killing me. I need you to save me. You're the only God who's generous. We become like what we worship. And if we worship these false gods that only take from us, we're only going to take from others. But if we worship the true God of the universe who gave himself for us in Jesus, we'll become those kinds of generous people. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond and worship. God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you are the God who's revealed yourself in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I pray that we would live out our vocations and our callings in a way that glorifies you, in a way that reflects both your justice but also your generosity as we treasure you above all else. God, help us to treasure you in a way that teaches us to be those who who treasure other people instead of things. We pray that you would make us new by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.